Carl is 100% fine. And uh, sometimes uh, stuff like that happens in meditation every now and then. I'm not, I've seen that happen before. It's strange because she was also a little bit trembling. There was some kind of energy in her body and she wasn't aware of it. So, but uh, it was everybody came and took care of her and brought her back to Earth from whatever planet she was on. And uh, carefully we discussed it and we, we figured out exactly what it was. It's well known in medical science and also in this meditation text of Buddhism they speak about this. It's called one of those things. Can you hook her up, her up to what she needs no, to hear? No, oh. What can we do about that? It's, it's not going to work tonight. Oh. Okay. If she sat right there, maybe she has a better chance. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yes, uh, abnormal things are perfectly normal, right? Mm -hmm. They happen every day. So we're not surprised, and we're, we're always ready. And somebody's always there to help and take care. And uh, isn't it something that in how many, two minutes, three minutes, that somebody can be there? And we have all these... Uh, Incredible. Uh, we, have, we actually, despite the fact that everybody says that our healthcare system is broken and messed up, which is true, nevertheless, you can get cared for well and quickly by really good people who care pretty much everywhere around here. And that's a real blessing. We didn't have that 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So we're lucky, all of us, to be living in a time when we can be well taken care of. So, that's good. Um, well, I'm really glad to be here. I, I love coming to Spirit Rock on Monday nights. It always cheers me up. <laughs> and uh, tonight, uh, some of you know, I have a, a writing habit. I just can't get over it. I keep... <laughs> I keep on writing. And uh, so I wrote a, uh, one of the Shambhala son, a son or somebody like that asked me to write something about anger. So I wrote about anger. Anger is a very popular subject. It seems that many people get angry. And it's important to uh, know how to work with our anger. So. Anyway, they asked me to write about this, and, and I did, and I thought I would uh, uh, read for you my little essay on anger. Uh, and the title of it is, The Acupressure Point of the Heart. So, if you don't mind, I'll just go along here and uh, we'll see how this goes. Okay? 
So here's how it starts. One, two, three. Anger is impressive. When anger flares up, it takes over almost completely. It controls our emotions, controls our viewpoint, shapes our words and our deeds. And the body tenses, and the face reddens, the heart races, the mind races. We feel like we're ready to go off like a bomb. And this is not really pleasant when you're actually feeling this in your body. But some people uh, enjoy it. They do, because the intensity can be intoxicating. You know, it's very intense anger, right? It can really be energizing. You can get addicted to anger. You, you know, the adrenaline rush, the thoughts that are blasting out so quickly. So people can really get to like this. Plus, anger makes you intimidating. You're scary looking when you're angry, and people usually are scared of an angry person. So. People will fear you when you're anger, angry, and this can be quite flattering. <laughs> <clears throat> and also, if you're angry and demanding, people might actually give you what you want. Sometimes that happens, right? So therefore, a lot of people kind of like anger, even though the actual experience of anger can be quite unpleasant. Now, for most people, uh, full-blown anger doesn't happen every day. But milder forms of anger, which occur whenever we're slighted, whenever we're disrespected, whenever we're a little frustrated, or whenever we are in any way thwarted in what we expect or desire in a given moment, this happens all the time, right? Many times a day. So what I'm saying here is that anger, I don't think, is just one emotion among others. It's something really basic. Because we are all organizing the world around our self-interest, naturally all of us do this, and naturally all of us want things to go the way we want them to go, and because, just as naturally, the world and other people are not made to necessarily cooperate with our understandable, if unrealistic, request of them. So, <laughs> so, it's very likely that we will be at least a little angry quite a bit of the time. Now, if you look at anger more closely, you see how tricky and sneaky it actually is. For instance, anger can be there when you don't experience it as anger. You all have been standing next to the person who is sincerely saying to you and really means it, I'm not angry at all. <laughs> and yet you just know that that person is angry. And everybody around can see that. They seem to be manifesting that, even though they'll say, I'm not angry at all. So it's an odd thing that you could be angry and yet not feel that you're angry. And yet we all know this happens. This happens to all of us. And, and the opposite can also be true, that we're feeling really angry, but the anger is actually a cover-up for some other powerful emotion that has nothing to do with anger, like fear, for instance, or grief, 
or sorrow, an emotion that we just don't want to look at. And so instead, we fake anger and we don't realize we're doing that. So anger is very sneaky in this, in this way. Now, to practice with anger is something very different from simply being a victim of anger. To practice with anger is to make the effort to respect and understand it, to be willing to look more deeply at the complex of negative emotions that naturally arise as a normal part of our human condition, and to take responsibility for these emotions so that we can begin to do something creative with them. In classical Buddhist discussions, as you probably all know, anger is viewed entirely negatively. The implication is that we ought not to be angry, and that if we are angry, it's a failing of our spiritual practice. So, to be sure, anger is a problem, even if we are addicted to it, or even if we think we like it. The truth is, it's always a problem. To be addicted to anger, we now know, is really physically bad for you. It's unhealthy. And to be an angry, intimidating person might, in many cases, get you what you want, but actually it's not nearly as good as being a person who is loved and respected. That's much better for you, you know, than being a person who's feared because of your anger. You don't want to be that person. So yeah, anger really is a problem that we need to deal with. But on the other hand, if we could channel and purify anger's strong emotional energy and not be pushed around by its irrationality and destructiveness, we might be able to use it as an ally to help us work for the good. But here's the thing about anger that I think is most important. How are you doing? Can you hear it all? Good! Excellent! Yes! All right, so Carol is okay, you can hear, we're in business. Everything's good. Yeah, yeah. So back to anger. So there's something about anger that's even more important than these other things. The thing is, anger is information, right? Anger is telling you something about who you are and what is in your mind and on your heart in that moment. Anger is like physical pain in a way. Just as physical pain is negative, we don't like pain, it hurts, but it's also positive because pain is the body's way of protecting itself by indicating that something is wrong and often telling you where it's wrong. So also, in the same way, anger can show us something crucial about our emotional life that we, we may need to know in order to be healthy human beings. So anger is an indicator. Yes, here's anger. That means something needs attention. Here's anger. That means something needs investigation. If we're angry, it's because we're thwarted and frustrated or somehow afraid and possibly we don't know it. And we need to know it so that we can shift and so that we can grow. Almost always our various fears and frustrations signal times and opportunities for growth and change if only we can look them in the face. When we're willing to do that, we will see things differently, more accurately. And instead of avoiding our fears and frustrations or beating our heads against them in anger, 
as we're lashing out at ourselves, lashing out at somebody else, or just mad at the world, we could instead be able to pass through these fears and frustrations and become larger, more inclusive, and more compassionate people. There's a wonderful uh, Zen text that I chant a lot called Tore Enji's Bodhisattva's Vow. And there's a line in this text that says, Then in each moment's flash of our thought there will grow a lotus flower, and each lotus flower will reveal a Buddha. And in each moment's flash of thought there will grow a lotus flower, and each lotus flower will reveal a Buddha. And the reason I like that line so much is that once in a retreat I had a big insight about that line. And I realized for myself how profoundly true this was. I realized that every thought and every emotion that I had, even the most nasty, rotten, negative ones, <laughs> the painful ones, the ones that I was desperately trying to meditate my way out of, Every one of them was actually a lotus flower. Once I got to the bottom of it, once I got past my old habit of aversion and desire and actually saw the thought, I saw that it was a lotus flower and that there was a Buddha sitting on it. That every thought, every emotion, no matter how negative it may seem, is valuable, is worthwhile, and is even beautiful. And I could see that if I was willing, with patience, to stay with that thought long enough without reacting or spinning around as I usually did. And this is just as true of our anger. Anger also is a lotus flower on which sits a Buddha awakening us. We can trust our anger and we can practice with it. We don't have to be afraid of it. Buddhism is justly valued for its many effective and sensible ways of working with anger. And all these ways depend on mindfulness, the ability to create the inner space necessary to investigate and be fully present with an emotion. Strong emotions, especially the negative ones like greed, anger, jealousy, envy, and so on, spin us around. Once they catch a hold of us, they spin us around. Before we even know what we're feeling, we're already blaming and grabbing and acting, usually unwisely. Mindfulness gives us the chance to be present with an emotion before the spinning starts, or even sometimes while we're spinning. To be mindful is to relax and allow Consciousness to open around an object. Mindfulness is a soft light illuminating what is there with honesty and simplicity and sympathy. When we sit in meditation, we're always practicing mindfulness, whether it's mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness of the sounds in the room, or mindfulness of thoughts and feelings arising and passing away. Meditation really is mindfulness. We're training ourselves when we sit to be 
generously present. Mindfulness is radical and it's subtle. When we get up from our meditation cushion, the mindfulness goes on. Once we establish a practice of meditation, we can't help but be more mindful also during the rest of the day. Rather than being propelled and most likely blinded by what we think we want, instead, we're now paying attention. We're being present. We're willing and interested to see more widely and openly what is actually happening. And when you start to be in your life like that, it changes what you experience. It changes how you behave. And ultimately, it actually changes the sorts of things that will happen to you. Mindfulness is simply being with what happens in the faith that your ability to do this is naturally, little by little, going to change things. So that's basic mindfulness practice. But there are also other more intentional and more active practices that support and are supported by mindfulness. Some of you might know, in, in recent years I've been studying a, a very famous uh, Tibetan uh, text on Lojong teachings. Lojong means mind training or heart training. This is a category of teachings on how to transform negative emotions like anger, greed, envy, and so on into sympathy, love, and compassion. And so I've been practicing with, with uh, one of the most famous of the Lojong texts called uh, Seven Points of Mind Training, which is based on 59 practice slogans. And my book that came out not too long ago is, is called Training and Compassion, Zen Teachings on the Practice of Lojong, and it's based on that text. 59 slogans. And uh, the slogans are little aphorisms that are kind of memorable, like an advertising slogan or something. Memorable and uh, sometimes a little funny, cute. But they're designed to point you in an advantageous spiritual direction. So the way I work with the slogans is I, I you know, write them on a card, write them in a notebook, copy them again and again, and I try to put them inside my mind. I bring them into meditation. I breathe with them so that I, I'm training my mind to remember these phrases as if the, the phrase is going to be like a physical object. That I could, like a little stone I could carry in my hand, you know, to remind me of something, I could have this phrase in my head. In meditation, I breathe with the phrase, I stay with the phrase, with every breath, until all my ideas and speculations about the phrase become boring, and there's only the words themselves, like a good, wise friend urging me on. So when you practice like this for a while, all of a sudden the slogan will pop up in your head spontaneously, maybe many times a day, as a substitute for the other mindless thoughts that otherwise would be popping up, that are not leading you particularly in an <laughs> advantageous spiritual direction. So every time this slogan pops up into your mind, it reminds you of your practice and of the necessity of working with your emotions, not just when you're meditating and feeling spiritual, but all the time. 
all the time, especially when you're in the midst of your life and all of its many issues and problems. All of a sudden, pop, there's the slogan, pops up. And little by little, it starts working its way into your thinking and into your conduct. So, just very quickly, I'm going to tell you what the seven points are, just so, to give you a very brief overview, because I want to talk about some of the slogans in the book in relation to anger. So just to give you an idea, the seven points of mind training. Point one, resolve to begin. And this is an exploration of your deepest motivations. Point two, training in empathy and compassion. These are meditations to cultivate absolute and ordinary compassion and caring. Part three, transform bad circumstances into the path. This is a training to learn how to make use of all the things you don't want to happen that inevitably do. How do you make use of those for the path? Instead of saying, oh no, I wanted to be practicing meditation and spirituality, but these bad things happened and it threw me off base. Does you do the opposite? Use those things for your practice. That's the third point. Point four, make practice your whole life. Stop seeing spiritual practice as a nice, pleasant, optional activity in your busy life, which you will do as soon as you have time for it. And realize that you're a human being. Naturally, your life is a spiritual life. Everything in your life is your practice. Part five, assess and extend. Learn how to monitor your practice efforts so that you can keep on track. Point six, the discipline of relationship. Since relationships are a principal site for your spiritual practice, you need to learn how to practice with them. Because, boy, other people are hard, right? They throw us off so easily. I can practice with my breath. Maybe I can deal with my own thoughts, but oh boy, don't get me around my mother, you know? <laughs> or my sister, or my whoever it is. Right? We gotta, if we can't do it there, wh where are we going to do it, right? And seven, living with ease in a crazy world. A bunch of other slogans that, that help you cope. So these are the seven points of mind training, and the 59 slogans are organized under those seven categories. So, I would like to take a few slogans from point six, the discipline of relationship, and explore how these slogans might be useful in working with anger. And here are the slogans I want to talk about. Don't figure others out. <laughs> Work with your biggest problems first. Abandon hope. <laughs> Don't poison yourself. Don't poison yourself. Don't be so predictable. So I'm going to very briefly just discuss these. So first, don't figure others out. So think about this. Think about how much we are all talking about our friends and relatives, analyzing their words and deeds, sizing them up as if we actually knew what make them, makes them tick. Don't we all do this? 
You know, that's our most popular uh, form of conversation. <clears throat> but probably you don't appreciate being reduced to this or that cartoon-like, probably not entirely complimentary version of yourself. <laughs> Do you? No, who likes that, you know? I mean, don't you have a horror of thinking, you, you would not want to be able to listen in on the conversations that your friends are having about you. You know what I mean? <laughs> don't you feel that? It'd be too horrible. You just don't want to hear that. So why are you having conversations about them, right? And the fact is, any version, any version of who you, they, or anyone else is, is incorrect. And you know this because you sit on your meditation cushion. You only need to sit there for half an hour. That would be long enough to show you how full of contradictions you are. <laughs> full of contradictions, unacknowledged issues, dark, barely noticeable secrets, <laughs> unfinished business, lunacy of all sorts. Thank God we don't get up from our meditation cushions, turn to the other person, and tell them exactly what has been going on <laughs> in the last half hour, because everybody would freak out and say, I'm not never going there again. It's a room full of lunatics. <laughs> so in other words, and it's not, not, not that it's all bad. A lot of it is very admirable, you know? But it's just mixed. There's a lot of different things going on. That's my point. There are a lot of good sides to all of us and a lot of bad sides to all of us. In other words, nobody has the capacity to figure out another person. And yet, we think we have the other person figured out, don't we? We get mad at somebody and we think we know exactly who they are and exactly what they're thinking. And then, based on this completely wrong mischaracterization, we go forth and we deal with that person. Especially when we're angry, right? When we're angry with somebody, we know exactly who they are and exactly what's wrong with them. And we know why this person doesn't, doesn't you know, merit a speck of our respect. Why would we give such an awful person the benefit of the doubt? No way, no way. Isn't that how it is? I mean, we're convinced. And yet, the truth is, we don't have the, any idea who that person is, what makes them do what they do, what's going on inside him or her. We have no idea why he or she is behaving that way. So that means we are angry at phantoms. We are angry at figments of our own imagination. And that really is true. How stupid is that? Don't figure others out. So remember that. The next one, work with your biggest problems first, which of course is the opposite of what we all want to do, right? Let's take on something easy, and then we can work our way up to the difficult things. But of course, operating like this, we never seem to get past the one or two easiest things, do we? So this slogan says, no, don't do that. 
Turn first toward what is most difficult. Screw up your courage and go there right away. And this will take all the mindfulness you have been cultivating from, from your time on the meditation cushion, and even more than that. It will take forbearance, one of the most powerful and least appreciated of all spiritual practices. Forbearance is the capacity to patiently stay with something unpleasant or difficult. To face it rather than do what comes 100% naturally for all of us. To turn away, distract, obscure, deny. Just to stay with the difficulty. And, and it requires that we develop the capacity, first of all, in our body and in our breath and in our actual heart to stay firm and aware without freaking out and without acting, at least for the moment. Now when we're angry, we typically right away start blaming and lashing out. And because most of us are actually not courageous enough to lash out at the people we're actually angry with, <coughs> we gossip. We take pot shots, or very often, all too often, we lash out at someone who's safer to lash out at. Not the person we're angry with, but somebody else, usually somebody close to home. We do that, or we just grouse and complain and feel indignant in the privacy of our own minds. All of this doesn't do a thing to hurt the person we're angry at, but it does a lot to hurt us and probably the people closest to us. All of that is exactly the opposite of this slogan. Work with your biggest problems first means that when we're angry, we turn toward the anger. We look at the actual anger. We feel it in our body. We feel it in our breathing. We see what kinds of thoughts are coming. We see the speed with which the thoughts are coming. And instead of leaping over all of this to blame, recrimination, distraction, furious action, we stay right there with the uncomfortable feeling. And of course, when we can do that, we're going to calm down right away. We're going to understand more what's really happening. And when we do act, we're going to act a lot more wisely. Abandon hope. What? Abandon hope? <laughs> Don't we all want to be hopeful? Don't we all want to hope that tomorrow will be better than today? Don't we all want to hope that all of our spiritual endeavors are going to pay off later on? Aren't we hoping that somehow our anger will transform? But if you investigate hope closely, you'll realize how counterproductive it can sometimes be. To hope usually means to reject the experience of this moment. Forget about today, I'm hoping for tomorrow. Hope can actually be a kind of cowardice. Rather than face what's going on right now, let me focus my attention on later, when things will certainly be much more pleasant than they are in this moment. 
In the case of anger, maybe we have some hope that internally the anger will somehow dissolve or that externally the person we're angry at will see the error of their ways and finally apologize and make amends. Or maybe we're hoping that if we do our Buddhist practice, everything will somehow turn out all right in the end. <laughs> yes. But usually those kind of hopes get in the way. Because the truth is, anger, among other difficult things in our lives, is very hard to overcome, let's be honest. Pretty thoughts and affirmations and wishing are not going to make anger go away. And the job of seeing through your anger and clarifying it, I'm sorry to tell you, is going to take a lot longer than you think. Many times you think, ah, I've finally seen through this, and whoops, there it is again. Hope can breed laziness and even impatience. And patience, which requires an act of courage, is what you need the most. So internally, you do really need to have the commitment to go on working with your anger, even to take some delight in this work. Because if anger is an entirely negative thing that a nice person like you shouldn't be feeling, and you are hoping that your good practice at Spirit Rock will swiftly purify your heart and make the anger go away, well, the shock and disappointment that you're going to feel when this turns out not to be the case is going to be a major impediment, believe me. So working on your anger in the hope that this good work will somehow cause the other person to be different also likely will not pan out. <laughs> now to be sure, it does sometimes happen, and I've seen this happen, that when you soften, so does the other person. That does happen. On the other hand, it is very probable that the other person has a life larger than simply their interactions with you. <laughs> In other words, there are more reasons why they're angry than just you, right? So we have to abandon hope and simply be willing to roll up our sleeves and work with our anger without expectation that others will become nicer to us if we do so, although that could happen. In fact, as I say, our efforts do pay off, but the irony is they only start paying off when we stop hoping that they will. It's very funny, but that's true. The more you say, how come I'm not improving, the less you improve. The more you forget about whether you're improving or not, the more you improve. That's the way it goes. The next one, don't poison yourself. Poison, in this case, has a very specific meaning. And it means self-centeredness. Although I think it's changing rapidly, as evidence of so many of you here and other Dharma centers everywhere, lots of people going to those places, because this is changing, but in our culture, the idea of looking out exclusively for yourself is taken, more or less, as a virtue. Of course, you're taught as a kid, stick up for yourself. Of course, go out there and compete against the many others. 
who are vying for the same place in the sun that you need to stand in. But, you know, yes, that's right. Each of us does have to be responsible for ourselves. We can't expect that others are going to take care of us. But at the same time, it's pretty clear to most of us now that excessive self-concern is counterproductive. It leads to paranoia, greed, and bad personal and social consequences. So the antidote to this self-concern, which is really pretty much ingrained in and programmed in so many of us, all of us really, the antidote to it is a wise concern for others that balances the self-concern. So it's not that we eliminate self-concern, but we balance it with a wise concern for others. And this balance is not a kind of mathematical equation, a kind of tortured compromise, but it's just a natural way of being. For instance, take a parent who is primarily concerned for the welfare of a child. If this parent doesn't have some self-concern, he or she is not going to be able to sustain concern for the child. If the parent doesn't take care of his health and psychological well-being, which requires some happiness, what kind of a job is he going to do taking care of his child? If he's grumpy, you know, sick all the time, depressed, what kind of a parent is he going to be if he doesn't take care of himself? So self-concern is not a bad thing. It is a requirement. You can't be concerned for others unless you're okay. You've got to take care of yourself. But when self-concern is practiced as an end in itself, and not for the sake of others, it becomes poisonous. People actually become poisoned with self-obsession. They become sick. To practice this slogan is to notice that when we become defensive and aggressive, it's because of the poison of self-concern. Imagine how your experience of anger would be different if in a moment of anger, all of a sudden this slogan popped up in your mind. Imagine being furious and all of a sudden, don't poison yourself. Pops into your mind. And you immediately use the slogan as a device to turn your attention in that very moment to others. Maybe even the person that you're angry with. How does all this appear from her point of view? If you could do that in a moment of anger, everything would be different. The last one. Don't be so predictable. This slogan is the other side of don't figure others out. That is, don't be so sure you have yourself figured out either. <laughs> to do spiritual practice seriously, is to cultivate a sense of openness and possibility, not only in relation to others, but especially, especially in relation to yourself. Remember the text I, I mentioned a moment ago. In each moment's flash of thought, there is a lotus flower that will reveal a Buddha. Now, many of us who've been alive for a while have amassed a certain amount of evidence that we are this way or that way. 
We are an angry person. We are a compassionate person. We are cheerful, phlegmatic, depressed, repressed, expressive, extroverted, introverted. We know because we've been ourselves for quite a while. And that's fair enough. We all have genetic predispositions. We've been formed by culture, family, habit. We've got a lot of conditioning, and that doesn't go away overnight, just because we feel like we'd like it to. So yeah, that's right. But on the other hand, we are also living creatures who have the capacity to respond creatively to what happens to us in any given moment. And we all know this. There's nobody here who believes that you are 100% of the time doomed to have the same exact reaction to things that you've had before. We all know life is various and we all change, that we have free will, we are intelligent people. The whole idea of spiritual cultivation, or education for that matter, is that we can change. But the truth is, most of us have a commitment to proving that the opposite of this is true. <laughs> we take a great pride in proving that we really are the way we say we are and think we are. I've noticed this over the years of working with people in Dharma for like 30 or 40 years. People say they want to change, but when you look more deeply, you realize, yes, it's true, I do want to change, but on the other hand, I'm so committed to the way I am. <laughs> and I'm so identified with it. I mean, it's comfortable. I can't, I, I'm not quite comfortable being somebody else. So even though you know, we might come to practice and really put a lot of effort into wanting to change, sneakily under, underneath that, we're kind of sabotaging whatever those changes could be. That does happen. Don't be so predictable asks us to examine this very sneaky phenomenon and to be honest about it. To notice, let's say in the case of anger, our generic response, whatever it is, and pay close attention to it, not simply mindlessly repeating it time after time. Let's say, for instance, that when we get angry, we clam up. A lot of people have that reaction, right? They're the ones who say, I'm not angry. I'm not angry at all. And they might feel that they're not. So let's say we're like that. And we observe ourselves doing this. And then we investigate. What's going on here? Is this an old habit that maybe I've overgrown, outgrown it? Or where does this habit come from? And do I like it? Do I not like it? Is it comfortable? Is it not comfortable? How does it feel in my body? How does it feel in my breath? And the most important question, is something else in this moment possible? Could we be a little more creative, a little less lazy in the way we, we respond to conditions in our lives? So challenging ourselves in this open-ended and curious way without expectations or mandates that it be this way or that way, but just openly investigating, looking, seeing. That's how we practice. 
with this slogan. Insofar as anger always presents us forcefully with the possibility that we could challenge our usual way of doing business, it can be a very, very helpful reminder of who we are now and who we might become. Anger is an acupressure point in the heart. When you touch it, it might feel sore and raw, but that's okay. If we know how to be patient with the pain, how to gently and skillfully massage it, we could be healed by the very anger itself. So that's my little essay on anger. Oh, applause. You know what the, uh, the last of the 59 slogans is? Don't expect applause. So I, I went on there for a long time, but we have just a short time, maybe five or, five or six minutes for any comments, questions. Yes, in the back. Yes, yes, yeah, the, 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 the slogans uh, practice is not only about working with anger, it also is about all, working with all the afflictive emotions, trying to understand the root of the afflictive emotions and turn them toward compassion and sympathy. In this particular talk, I was just stressing anger, but yes, in the book, uh, there are many other uh, things that are discussed in there, yeah. Yeah, it's the, the, the basic principle of turning toward the emotion and understanding it and studying it rather than leaping over it and trying to avoid it and distract yourself. That's the, that principle is true for all of the emotions. That's right. That's a general principle. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes, I see a hand right here toward the front. Um, yeah. So uh, you talked a lot about, I mean, anger towards other people. Yeah. Um, but what I find is a more complex and often harder problem to like contemplate is anger towards myself. Yes. So how do you have any you know, advice or... It's pretty much the that? same thing. Yeah. When you think about it, who is angry at who there, right? Me. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> how could you be angry at you unless you were somebody else? Do you know what I mean? You, 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 in other words, we externalize ourselves. You, we have an image of ourselves. Yeah. And we're mad at him. So who's this other one over here? Where, where, where is he? How did that happen? It's weird, isn't it? When you yeah, think about it. It's really weird. It's You're very weird. me. <laughs> yeah. So in, in a way, it's, it's the same thing. You have to uh, stay with the feeling. And because what happens is, so you get angry with yourself, right? And then you have a lot of reasons why you're angry with yourself. Because you did this and you did that and you're like this and you're like that. And you think you're right because it's you. Yeah, yeah. And you're over there thinking, yeah, I got him. He's really, what's wrong with him? <laughs> the whole thing is pretty crazy when you think about it. So then you have to just, actually, honestly, the, most, the simplest technique is the best. When you find yourself in that habitual state of mind, because it feeds off itself, right? The more it happens, the more it happens, right? And it becomes, can become debilitating. So what you have to do is, you know, first of all, you have to realize there's something really crazy about this. This doesn't make any sense, even though it's a habit and it perfectly rolls along in a nice way. But actually, it doesn't make any sense when you think about it. And then the simplest technique is to just, when it happens, you're on the lookout for it. Instead of now, probably what you feel 
is you're thinking, oh God, what a drag when that happens. I hate that. It's awful. You flip your mind and you think, okay, I can hardly wait for that to happen. As soon as that happens, I'm going to pounce right on it. As soon as I start going along those well-worn paths in my mind, I'm going to return my attention to my body and my breathing. And I'm going to be so fiercely present with my feet on the ground if I'm standing or my butt on the chair if I'm sitting or whatever, I'm, whatever position I'm in. And I'm going to pay attention to what is going on in my body and in my breathing until that thing just falls away by itself. And the next time it happens after that, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to keep doing it until this stupid idea falls right out of my head. There's a wonderful passage in a sutra where the Buddha said, actually I think it was the night that he was awakened, like the day, the day or so leading up to that. He was in the forest and he started getting really scared. And he said, when I got scared, if I was walking, I didn't stop walking until the feeling went away. And if I was sitting, I didn't get up until the feeling went away. If I was standing, I didn't move until the feeling went away. It's very powerful. The hardest part is remembering to do it. That is the hardest part. Because you'll be going, you know, maybe you'll remember what I'm telling you next time this happens. But probably what will happen is you'll be going on and on for like days. <laughs> and then you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I remember. And then you'll do it. So you have to remember to do it. But if you remember to do it, you actually could like turn around that. And people build entire lives on this kind of mental habit, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they go on for 60, 80 years if they're lucky enough to live that long with this, that same habit. And it, it is not a good idea. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I, good luck. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> let me know. Come tell me like uh, 10 years or so or I'm still alive. Come let me know what, what happened. I'm interested. Yeah. You, you look me up, you find me somewhere. You know, send me a postcard or something like that. that. People do that sometimes, send me a postcard. Hey, I don't feel as bad anymore. <laughs> Maybe one more. There's a hand in the back. Can you hand the mic back? This will be the last one, then we'll all go home and think about it all and see what happens next. How do you feel, Carol? You're still there? You're still okay? Yeah, you feel good. Yeah. So my question is about rage. Mm -hmm. I have not mastered anger, but I can sit with my anger or someone else's anger at me, mostly my children when they get angry, mm -hmm. to open and allow it rather than shut it down. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you're using if you're using the concept of anger and rage is the same. Rage, rage is something that I have to block. Mm. So I'm wondering if you're using it as all of it's the same, whatever the yeah. emotion is. Well, when it comes to these emotions, we all use the term slightly differently. It sounds like you're, when you say rage, what you mean is an uncontrollable emotion that uh, is so powerful, there's nothing you can do about it. Out. A it's blackout. More, yeah, it's yeah. more of a blackout. Anger is like the person's yeah, still conscious. Yeah. We're having a conversation. Uh -huh, Rage is like drunk. Yeah, and I don't mean yeah. alcohol, but just yeah, they're yeah. not there. Yeah. So you're talking about somebody else who's in, in, in a state of rage. Oh, but. I never get rageful. That's true. No. Yeah. Um, whoever, if it's myself, uh -huh. I can get that, that feeling of <clears throat> I look back on it and some time is missed. I yeah, have, I'm yeah, not there. Yeah, I'm just yeah. in it. 
Well, uh, yes. I mean, when, that, when, when extreme things like that happen, uh, there's nothing you can do other than endure it, and it, of course it comes to an end. However, the ongoing practice, like we've been talking about, will have an impact on how often and what, in what way that will ha happen. In other words, if you practice with anger in its less powerful forms, it will have an impact on the rage. So rage will be, the whole thing will be reduced. The whole thing gets dialed down. Yeah, because I think rage happens when there are conditions that make a person angry and they're not addressed. They're not addressed, they're not, you don't pay attention to it, and it just escalates. Um, so sometimes you can go from zero to rage in no time, you know, because it's all there festering, and then all of a sudden a stimulus pops up, and then it all comes bursting out. So if you begin working uh, you know, regularly with these things in your life, that's less likely to happen, little by little by little. So, I think we should, we should stop talking now. <laughs> and uh, I do, I appreciate, I really do appreciate being here, and you're, you're always so, if you ever want to uh, you know, be happy, just go around with a lot of meditators. Because they're so polite and nice. They, they, you talk, and they don't complain. They listen. I appreciate it. Uh, you're very fortunate. All of, all of us uh, to be here and to have uh, encountered the possibility of doing this practice. It really does help to make our lives more human. We can really become human beings in the fullest sense of the word, thanks to uh, the possibility of this of spiritual practice. So if you're here, it means that you, you feel like that's a possibility for you. So I celebrate that, and I'm really happy to see all of you. And maybe I'll see you all again. Take care of yourselves. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.